Good morning. I'm so glad to see you all here this morning. I'm glad you've come out to worship with us. I'd like to welcome all those who are at home watching. I hope you'll enjoy the worship service as well and participate there. Stand with me if you would and let's sing to our God this morning.
Good morning. So good to see you. We appreciate your flexibility and the time change with the uh, um, service times. We knew we have a lot of people being on today, so we made this adjustment. I want to read to you this morning from God's Word, Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses and the, and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. And the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrew those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing water stood like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw up my sword and my hand will destroy them. You blew with wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you? Among the gods, O Lord, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. Let's pray. Lord, who is like you? There's no God other than you. You alone, O Yahweh, are God. And you alone are worthy of all of our praise and our adoration and our service. And Father, we thank you that you are a God who delivers your people, those who trust in you. God, we are amazed when we think about how you divided the Red Sea and caused a water of wall to stand on the right and on the left to allow your people to walk through on dry land. But when the Egyptians went through, Lord, you closed that sea upon them, showing that you are greater than all of their enemies. Lord, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ that we sang about this morning, who has delivered us from something far greater than an earthly enemy. Lord, you have delivered us from the power of sin and of death. You've done a far greater work in that you sent your son to hang upon the cross, to take upon himself our sin, to pay our price, as we sang this morning. It was my death that you died. And you delivered me from the power of darkness, the power of sin. Thank you, God, for your deliverance. And Lord, help us to remember 
to look to you in all the things that we face. And if you can deliver us from all of these things, then, Lord, there is nothing in this world that you cannot deliver us from. So, Lord, we stand today with gratitude in our hearts for your mighty power, for your delivering power, for your grace and your salvation through Jesus Christ. God, may you minister to the people that are gathered here today. May you minister to those that are watching from home. May you meet the needs in their lives and show them your greatness. And may their hearts be filled with praise. And may they recognize anew that who is like you among the gods, you who alone deliver, you alone who are awesome in praises, working wonders. We give you glory through Christ. Ask your blessing upon this service today in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes it feels like I'm watching from the outside. Sometimes it feels like I'm
to know that we have a, another home, a better resting place. You may be seated. Thank you, praise team, for leading us this morning and singing about the Lord. You know, I was thinking about, uh, uh, we sang, you know, draw me nearer. That's certainly one place that we want, don't want to be doing social distancing, isn't it? It was with the Lord. We want to be drawn near. And it's wonderful, really, to gather together with God's people. There's just, it just does something uh, for my spirit just to to see God's people gathered together and to be able to have some conversation and some smiles. Uh, I've said it so many times, I've come to have a new appreciation for what church really means when I stand trying to speak into a a camera. I, I try to imagine that you're in there. You know, in that little hole, <laughs> that lens, but it's just not the same as looking at your at your faces. And so, uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity that God's given us just to be able to together. Though we may be smaller, it is wonderful to be together. Well, you know, we've been studying the book of Revelation, and I've kind of just stuck with that, haven't deviated from that because I, I just felt like it seems to be very timely and appropriate for the day in which we live. And and today we're going to be in chapter 8. We are making progress in this great book. You know, we live in a world that is crying out for justice. And they want to make sure that we hear them. How do they get our attention? Well, everywhere we turn, we see their message. It's in the news. It's in entertainment, it's in sports, it's in business, it's on social media. I mean, it's even in the churches. It's on t-shirts. I mean, it's everywhere you look, there's that message. Not only is it pervasive, but it's loud. At times, it's even violent. Its slogans are not only crudely written on signs, but it's indelibly inscribed on the streets in blood in some places. And many in our world are taking note and are joining in. But the cry for justice in our world is so often selective. We cry for things like social justice and racial justice and economic justice and whatever other adjectives you want to add to that. We want justice for some things, but not for all things. We may want justice for for someone who has harmed our loved one, but not necessarily for those who would kill their children in the womb or even after, right after they're born. See, justice by its very definition means that we get what we deserve, good or bad, based on an established standard of law. True justice, you see, cannot be separated from righteousness. It has to be righteous across the board, universal, or it's not really justice. And it's objective, it's impartial, it's unbiased, and it's equitable. And when we're rightly judged, 
by an objective moral law and punished or rewarded accordingly, then that is justice. But the world doesn't really want the justice of righteousness, but God does. And God is going to bring about justice for every person. You say, well, how do we get God's attention? Don't we want justice? I mean, how do we get his attention? Do we get his attention by going to the streets? By going to the Capitol? Do we get his attention by carrying signs or wearing t-shirts? Do we, by protesting or rioting? No, we get God's attention simply by coming into his presence to the throne of grace and making our petitions known to him. God hears the prayers of his people. And you don't have to cajole. You don't have to be like the prophets of Baal that cut themselves and did all these things in order to get God to hear. God hears his people. And God's people have been crying out for justice for a long time. Ever since the the blood of Abel cried out from the ground in the book of Genesis, the prayers of God's people have accumulated over the ages, and they are at the altar of heaven even now. You may not know that, but that is true. And... As we come to Revelation chapter 8, John sees the Lamb begin the final phase of his promised judgment on the world in response to the prayers of his people. As we've been studying through the book of Revelation, we've seen that Christ is in the process of taking back control of the universe from Satan and his followers. Uh, I'll I'll put up our graphic just kind of as a reminder so you can remember where we have been. Uh, This is uh, uh, just kind of that summary. Uh, The the first five seals that we have seen, uh, false peace and and war and famine and uh, death and vengeance, They've all occurred within the first part of the tribulation, the first half of that tribulation. But they they pale in comparison to the sixth seal, which when this seal is open, the, 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 the people cry out for the rocks and the mountains to, to fall on them and to deliver us from the one who sits on the throne and the lamb because he says the day of his vengeance has come. Who can who will be able to stand? And when the Lamb opens the seventh and last seal of the scroll, the judgments intensify and expand dramatically. The final seal, the seventh seal, has within it the full sweep of the remaining divine judgments of the time of the Great Tribulation, including the trumpet and the bowl judgments, which kind of telescope out from one another and and kind of increase in intensity and scope. We don't have an exact time frame for these things to develop, but what we do know is that they escalate, each one escalates in intensity, and all of these occur in the final three and a half years of the tribulation. 
The seventh seal encompasses all of God's final judgments up to the triumphant return of Jesus Christ in glory. So we want to read about that here in Revelation chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there was followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there was hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the water. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and the sun and the third of the, st- the moon and the third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would not would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in the mid heaven, saying with a loud voice, "Woe, woe, woe, to those who dwell on the earth, because of the remaining blast of the trumpets of the three angels who are about." to sound. And this is the word of God. Again, let's humble our hearts in prayer. Our Father, we realize the gravity of these words and uh, the, the difficulty at times in understanding them fully. And so, Lord, we come with a great dependence upon your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, to, to help us to, to, to take into our minds and our, to our lives the truths that are here. And I pray, Lord, for me today that you might grant to me to speak in a way that would reflect the truth and the reality of the Scripture and that would benefit your people and those that have never come to know you. Draw them to yourself, we pray, today in salvation through understanding these words. We give you uh, this praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we open the eighth chapter, we have a prelude. And a prelude is really it's characterized by three elements. First thing that we see is we, we see a, a silence of anticipation. And it tells us in, again, verse 1, he says, When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, Think about this. As the rightful heir of the universe takes the scroll from God's hand and begins to open those first six seals, judgments just pour out upon the earth. But when he takes that final seal 
and is about to open it, something unusual occurs. There is silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, that's unusual because as we've been looking at this, studying this book, we've been hearing a lot of noise and having all kinds of things going on, especially the praising of God and incredible things happening in the, in the, in, in the heavens. The question is, why is there silence in heaven? Well, some say it's a dramatic pause. I think it's, I think it's much more than that. You see, when the inhabitants of heaven realize the, the final judgment that is about to come upon the earth, they are stunned with silence. They're standing there with their mouths open in awe of about what God is about to do in the world. And they are shocked as they anticipate the grim reality of the destruction that is revealed. The, the half hour of silence is, is the calm before the storm. Have you ever experienced the calm before the storm? Something so eerie about that. The contrast is so great. The calm and then the storm. And the greatest event since the fall is about to take place. And all heaven, you see, is waiting in anticipation. Then we see not only this this silence of anticipation, but we see a, a supplication at the altar. And it tells us in verse 3, he says, Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add to it the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hands. Now here are the prayers of God's people being offered up to the throne of God. You get this picture? You see, in the Old Testament, the the priests would have to twice each day would take hot coals from the brazen altar, and they would take them and carry them to the altar of incense where the incense would be added, and it would ignite that incense. It would begin to burn, and it would begin to smoke. And that was a picture for God's people, an elementary basic picture of the prayers of God's people rising to heaven to God. It was just a visualization of something spiritual for them. God often does those kind of things. And so he's picturing the prayers go rising up to God's people. But I want you to get the picture here. Already in heaven, there are the prayers of God's people at the throne. And these prayers are still present because they have yet to be answered. These are prayers that are on hold, as it were. And this angel is given much incense, and it communicates the idea of the multiplied prayers that are beginning to occur during the time of the tribulation. It includes the intensity of these prayers, and it says they are added to. There's an accumulation of the prayers of God at the throne of God, and all of these prayers move mightily God's hand. 
to bring about this final judgment. I don't know what goes on in God's mind, but in, in my thinking, my understanding, I, I almost always see this tension between God of, of withholding judgment in grace and, and working to bring about the justice that needs to occur. There's always got to be that tension because there's something in God that wants people to be saved that doesn't want to pour out judgment. But there's also a part of God that is righteous and just, and he says, I must bring about this justice. And finally, the prayers of God's people crying out, God, justice. It moves the hand of God there in this place. And then we see in this prelude a storm of activation. It says in verse 5, Then then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and threw it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. When the angel throws this censer filled with coals of fire from the altar, the results are catastrophic. God's judgment falls upon the earth like a massive fireball from the sky. And this judgment comes in response, again, to the cumulative prayers of God's people. This is the activation, as it were, of God's judgment and bringing of justice upon the earth. And and following, notice that the peals of thunder and flashes of lightning and earthquake will come the horrors of the trumpet and the bold judgments. And by the end of those judgments, you see, this is still within the seventh seal. God's purging judgment of his creation will be complete. This is the beginning of the end. Now, beginning in verse 7, we come to one of the most difficult parts of the book of Revelation to interpret. There's much debate about whether or not these judgments are literal, that is, actual physical judgments that fall upon the earth, or if they're somehow symbolic, representing something you know deeper or more spiritual. My belief is that they are both. I believe that what we're looking at are literal events that occur upon the earth, but at the same time, all the events that occur have a spiritual meaning. They have a very, they're symbolic, but they are very clearly, there's a message in all that happens here. And for instance, in in the prophecy of Joel in the Old Testament, uh, he, he opens with a vivid description of locusts that came upon the land and ate every green thing in that land, stripped it completely. But as he continues to describe the judgment that has come upon the land, he also describes it becomes the judgment of the nation of Babylon coming like locusts upon the nation and stripping it of everything. That's a picture. It's a literal judgment of locusts. And it talks about the literal condition of God's people. And it talks about a greater judgment that is going to come in the form of the Babylonian captivity. And you see, you see, that's the way it is with our lives. 
There are things in our lives that we cannot see, but God gives us something into our lives, a difficulty, an adversity, a conflict, something in our lives, and it, and it pictures something for us. It pictures that if we continue in this way, we're going to lose everything. And he does that as an act of grace. Because he, even these judgments that are coming, they're acts, actually acts, they're, they're, they're justice, but at the same time, they're acts of Grace on God's part, still giving people time to repent. Now, and today, God is speaking of terrible moral failures through actual literal events in our day. We take, for instance, the drug scourge that's devastated our nation. Drugs destroy the mind, burn out the brain, turn people into beasts worse than animals. This plague is not only literal, but it symbolizes the danger of self-indulgence, a philosophy which is promoted by our culture, especially in the media. And self-indulgence, like cocaine or crack, lures us on, giving us a sense of immediate pleasure. But if we continue as we are drawn along in the, in, the, in the consuming of our pleasures, it eventually takes everything. You ever read, met, met someone addicted to drugs? They lose everything in their life. Every resource, physical, relational, and everything. And usually they usually lose their life. That's a picture of sin. That's a picture of self-indulgence. It's a literal event, but really it pictures something far greater, far worse. And that's the way it is in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation shows us that there are these are events that are coming, they're occurring. These events, as horrible as they are, there's something worse. You can lose your very soul. You lose everything if you don't turn to Christ. So, in Revelation, we've seen many people have repented. But we also see that there are many that have not. And so the judgments continue. And the first judgment that we see is the first trumpet what it comes with the first trumpet? Scorched earth. It says in verse 7, the, f- the first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Now this judgment is very similar to the seventh plague that fell upon Israel during Moses' confrontation of, of Pharaoh, when hail and lightning came from the whole, came upon the whole land. But it says this, it says that this hail and fire was mixed with blood. Now so you say, well, does that mean real blood, literal blood? Now think with me, isn't it interesting? See, when we read a passage like this, we almost immediately begin to look for a, quote, natural explanation for these things. How could this be? Because blood falling from the sky is not something that happens every day, right? 
So we're looking for an explanation for this. It's interesting. Scientists have documented that there is a phenomenon called blood rain or red rain. And the consensus is that this blood rain phenomenon is caused by uh, the um, spores of a green microscopic algae. Uh, It's a crazy thing. It's been documented. There are pools where it's filled with what looks like blood, where it rained this. But notice, but stay with me here, but notice that when this hail and fire, it says, mixed with blood, were thrown to the earth, that a third of the earth was burned up. See, there's a lot more going on here than than hail and and rain. The main ingredient is fire. The, a third of the earth is burned up. So we're, we're not told the cause of this, this hail and fire, but if we look for a natural cause, something that we could understand, you know, from a scientific per- perspective, then we could go back to verse 5 and we see, hey, there's an earthquake. And earthquakes are notorious for engaging, uh, triggering uh, volcanic eruptions. And we may have, you know, some volcanic eruptions and you got all this lava and smoke and debris flying into the air. And besides spewing vast quantities of of this blood red in appearance things into the atmosphere, you see, it would also trigger uh, storms that would produce large hail. Such thunderstorms would be keeping really with the imagery of the angel hurling the censer to the earth. He says there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning. Dr. Henry Morse says, the masses of water vapor blown skyward might well condense in the intense updrafts as hailstones. The blood of entrapped men and animals might be mingled with them, or possibly showers of liquid water drops might be contaminated with dust and gas so as to appear blood red. There's a case in which you could actually have both. You could literally have the blood of all the people that are killed and a red appearance of gases. It doesn't tell us. But there may be a a scientific explanation, but listen, there doesn't have to be. This is a supernatural judgment from God. And when God caused the death angel to pass over the nation of Israel and kill the firstborn of every family, there was no natural explanation for that. And when God parted the Red Sea and he called a, caused a wall of water on the right and a wall of water on the left, and the people of Israel walked through there on dry land, and then when the Egyptians followed, that all that water just came crashing down on them. There is not a scientific explanation for that. That is a supernatural judgment of God. God doesn't need a, a natural explanation for what he does. And so... I think it's very true that God used something natural. He used a sea. He used water to destroy the Egyptians. But he did it in a supernatural way. 
God does the same thing, it seems to me, throughout the book of Revelation. Sometimes God uses things like earthquakes and tsunamis and storms and volcanoes and asteroids and other, quote, natural phenomena, but in a supernatural way. And the fact that only one-third of the earth, it says, and the trees and the grass were burned up, I think it's indicative, obviously, that God is limiting his judgment. Now, third picks up on the number three, which is the number of God. You know, when we saw the judgments in the earlier seals, we saw the number four, a fourth of the earth was affected. That's the number of the earth, number four. But this is the number three, which is God. This is the direct involvement of God in these judgments. And the effects of this fire was catastrophic. It it would have destroyed crops and animals and wood for construction and the watershed and have all kinds of residual effects. I think that's fitting. It's a fitting judgment for those who, as Romans says, exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You know, when our people in our day have come to Think of the earth as something you worship. People are people today are very concerned about the environment. There are fears about you know uh, the ozone layer and uh, the pollution and the destruction of rainforest and and all of these things. You know, saving all kinds of different animal groups. I mean, people are just really caught up in all of this stuff. And and. and I think the passionate concern has really, it's gone beyond simply something, uh, a, a concern for health and safety, and it's, and it's become almost idolatry, a worshiping of Mother Earth. We, 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 we perpetuate this myth of, of Earth being our, our Savior. There's no question that man has failed in his responsibility to take care of the earth. We're sinful. We do all kinds of things that we shouldn't do to our, to our world, the, God, the world that God gave us. But you see, at the same time, what man does to the earth, it pales in comparison to what God is going to do to this world. God is going to bring about a great judgment because it's just. Earth Day that year is going to be a dismal failure. And there's going to be very little to celebrate. So a worse judgment is still yet to come. Second The second trumpet. What happens? The sea is stricken. Look at verse 8. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea had life, died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, when the second angel sounded, John saw that something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Now, here we have the clear use of a simile. Now, a simile is a comparison, and the key word in a simile is the word like. It didn't say he saw a burning mountain, but he saw something like a mountain. Not necessarily the shape of a mountain, 
you know, what you might think of, a, but, but the size of a mountain. And what he sees here is this burning ball of flaming ball, the size of a mountain falling into the sea. And it was, it says it was thrown into the street. In other words, it was directed there by God. And the judgment of the first trumpet, see, was on the land very clearly. This judgment is very clearly on the sea. And God created the sea to be a blessing to mankind, provide food and oxygen. I mean, we get much of our oxygen comes from the, the phytoplankton and the algae in the world's oceans. Uh, we get that hydrological cycle where the water gets picked up over the ocean, brought over the land, rains upon the, the world. I mean, these, these are, this is a great blessing that God has given us in the ocean. But at the same time, think about it. We live in a world now where people revere the ocean as their, their supposed or, origin of life. This is our, our ancestors came out crawling out of the ocean. It's almost revered in that way. She, when God, think with me here. When God brought those ten plagues upon the land of Egypt, every time that he brought a plague, it directly contradicted a belief or a religious view of the people in Egypt. It, it dealt with one of their gods. It showed that God was the real and true God. When we read in Genesis or in Exodus chapter 15, the question after the Red Sea is, what, who, what God among you is like you? What God in the land it could be compared to you? No, there are no comparisons. And you see, God is, is demonstrating that he is God over land. He is God over sea. God, he is God over the, the heavens. He is God. And there is no comparison to him. And then <clears throat> John saw a literal mountain-sized ball of fire fall into the sea. Now, if you, again, if we could go back to... Uh, a naturalistic explanation. We can say, well, this is a giant meteorite or an asteroid surrounded by flaming gases that have been ignited as it hits the Earth's atmosphere. Everyone we could imagine would see it. You know, we'd be on uh, the, all the news stations. They would be showing that on the on the satellite, and and everybody is is talking about it. Everybody's watching to see what's going to happen, and they've got these you know Fauci and and Burke type uh, authorities that are telling us uh, you know about what if it's really going to hit the Earth or not, and what we need to do, and and, and everybody's going to be speculating. The UN and all the people are going to be getting together and have conferences, it's going to be one of those kind of things, you know? And then it's going to strike somewhere in the world's oceans with a, an explosive power greater than that of an atomic bomb. Because the world's oceans are all connected, one-third of the oceans are going to be destroyed. It says a third of the sea became blood. Now again, is that blood? Is that real blood? <laughs> Is real blood? Um, I don't know. <laughs> and by the way, it's okay to say you don't know when you're studying the Scriptures. I, I, I don't know. Let me remind you, since this is a supernatural judgment, it could be. Now think with me. 
if a, a third, a third of all the animals, animal life in the ocean is killed. That could be some blood. They tell me, I, I was reading some about Normandy and the beaches there. And they said, as far as you could see, from those where those soldiers attacked that beach, that it was blood. The water was blood. I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I have a tendency to think it, it is. And it could be that if this fireball is coming out of the sky, and that it's affecting the atmosphere, it could cast a red glow over the surface of the water. Uh, it could be contaminations that gets into the water from that uh, fireball falling. And it could be just real blood in there as well. It's also very possible that is, this is a figure of speech called a, a, a metomy, a metomy. You know, it's, it's, it's the, uh-oh, I'm sorry. Get out of the way. I can stay on the, the front of the camera. It, it's, it's, a, it's a figure of speech in which it's like a simile, only it doesn't have the word like. And see, it sounds more powerful to say the, the sea became blood than it does to say the sea became like blood. It's just a powerful way of expressing it as well. And so this may be literal blood, and, and, but it seems to me that it, that's the most consistent way of thinking about it, that it includes these animals that have died and all the atmospheric changes that are happening with this impact. And it also tells us that this, this uh, fireball is going to cause a huge tsunami. The Jones giant waves will destroy a third of the ships on the world's oceans and completely swamp the ports. The resulting disruption of, of commerce and transportation is going to be economic chaos. So the first two trumpets will be devastating judgments on the land and on the sea. And then we come to the third trumpet and we see the springs polluted. It says in verse 10, the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on, a, on the springs of water and the name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became word Wormwood and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Again, another flaming object that he, that he calls a star here was hurled toward earth. And this uh, star, the word translated star, it can refer to any celestial body other than the sun or the moon. And this object, this object seems to have a fiery tail because it's described as burning like a torch. And the ancients used the word torch to describe uh, comets and meteorites because when you would throw a torch or drop a torch or run with a torch, it kind of looked like it had a tail. That's how they described those heavenly bodies. And so the, 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 this massive object, uh, original massive object, stays intact, crashes into the ocean. This object seems to, to dissipate and leave debris in the atmosphere over the could be, you know, the tail of a comet or something like that. We don't know. The, the fiery fallout, it says, fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and it polluted fresh water around the globe. 
That's also similar to the polluting of the Egyptians drinking water in Exodus chapter 7. Because of its deadly effects, this, this, this object is called wormwood. Now, wormwood is a shrub whose leaves are, are, manuf- are used to manufacture uh, absinthe. And absinthe is a, is a, they make a liqueur out of it that is so deadly that its manufacture is banned in many countries. And wormwood is mentioned eight times in the Old Testament, and every time that it's mentioned is associated with bitterness, poison, and death. Three of those times, wormwood is directly associated with poison water. So wherever the, whatever this poison is that's represented here by the name wormwood, it's lethal because it tells us that not only were the third of the uh, waters became poisonous like wormwood, but he also tells us that many men died from drinking it. This is kind of the reverse of the miracle at Mara where God turned bitter waters into, into fresh or sweet. It's also reminiscent of the, the first plague on Egypt when all the waters of the Nile was turned to blood and it was unfit to drink, it says. By the way, the, again, this one-third pattern over and over and over, the three there, it's, it's, this is to tell us this is the direct intervention of God in these judgments. This is the direct judgment of God. It's not, these are not random natural events, but divine judgments. No human deaths have been mentioned in these previous trumpets, although they undoubtedly did take a, a, a high toll on human lives. But with the, the third judgment, John records that. He says, many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The rivers will run dead with deadly poison. The wells will become springs of death. The lakes and reservoirs will be filled with toxic water. People will be able to survive for a while on stored provisions, but you can't go long without fresh water. And this is going to cause an incredible amount of chaos in the world, and it's going to cause widespread death. You think it was bad that you couldn't find water or toilet paper when this pandemic began? Friends, you haven't seen anything yet. And finally, we come to the fourth trumpet. And the sky is darkened. Verse 8 says, excuse me, verse 12 says, The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Now notice here, here the divine judgment shifts from the earth to the heavens. So we've got the land, we've got the sea, and we've got the heavens. All aspects of life as we know it, God is bringing judgment upon it. And they're still reeling from these ecological judgments, and people are going to be seeking answers to this crisis. Again, you know, there's going to be all these, you know, think tanks and seminars, and everybody's going to be trying to find out what we need to do. But during the middle of all this stuff that's going on, we're going to have a new disaster. A third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck. Interestingly, the word struck is the verb of the noun from which we get plague. It was plagued. 
So God plagues the heavens, as it were, and a third of them will be darkened, the day, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Now, does that sound familiar to you? If you're familiar with the plagues that, that God brought upon the Egyptians, the ninth plague was, was darkness, and it says it was darkness that they could feel for three days. And at this point, uh, the loss of the heat of the sun will cause the temperatures to plunge drastically all over the earth. They're, they're going to be severely disrupt the wor- world's, uh, you know, patterns of, of weather. It's going to affect the tides. It's going to affect all kinds of things. It, it's going to be bring storms, uh, the devastation of crops, further loss of animal and human life. You know, the Old Testament prophets associated such signs with the, with the, with the day of the Lord. This is what Isaiah chapter 13 verse 9 says. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark and will, and, it, and, and, and when it rises and the moon will not shed it's light. See, God has been saying all along that this is coming. But God in his grace has been holding it back. But at the same time, God in his grace is holding it back. The people of God have been crying out to God and saying, Oh, Lord, deliver us. Bring justice. Make things right. Take away this. And when now when all the lights are dimmed, it makes for a dramatic stage in verse 13. He says, And then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now the eagle is a bird of prey. And its appearance in the sky is a message for everyone to see and to hear. And he uses the word woe. That's used in Scripture of judgment. Woe. When you hear woe, it doesn't mean horse stop. It means judgment is coming. And, and woe repeated three times is the Hebrew way of expressing a superlative. It's the, you know, we say bad, worse, Worst. Well, this is the worst. It doesn't get any worse than this. God's wrath and judgment are about to come upon those who dwell upon the earth. And in the book of Revelation, those who dwell upon the earth, that phrase, that's a technical term for those who are unbelieving, rebellious toward God. God is going to continue to bring judgment upon those who are rebelling against him. That's why these judgments continue to fall. Because there continues to be rebellion. And there will be until the very end. You know, later in in book of Revelation, chapter 9 and verse 20, John records, he says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, 
so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. If you pay close attention to that, what you see is that people continue to practice idolatry, worshiping the earth, the sea, the heavens, and all the created world rather than the creator. And God brings judgment upon these things to show people that we are not subject to the creation. We are subject to the creator. And as Hebrews would tell us, the Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Friends, God, in his grace, allows us to hear a judgment rather than experience a judgment first. Remember what Jesus told the Pharisees? He says, you're able to look at the, at the, at the signs in the sky and tell the weather, but you can't tell the times. God gives us the opportunity to hear the truth before we have to experience the judgment. That's what preaching is all about, is God speaking his truth to us apart from the, the, the difficulties, the judgments. But when people don't respond, just like the Pharisees, they ended up facing a greater judgment. The, the temple was destroyed. Just Jerusalem was sacked. 70 AD. They didn't, they couldn't discern the times. There are people today that are hearing the message, but don't get it, are unwilling to get it, and they are going to have to eventually experience the judgments that will come. Don't let that happen to you. Turn to Jesus Christ. Because you know what? He's already taken all that judgment upon himself. And if you if you put your faith in him, you will have real life, eternal life. You will have justice. There will be justice because God brings about all the punishment of our lives upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are, we are given his perfect righteousness to stand before him. So if you haven't done that, you haven't called upon him, call upon him today. Our Father, we pray that you would indeed move upon the hearts of those who hear. For those who have never trusted in you, God, may you grant to them today the grace to look to you, to turn to you in faith. For those of us who are believers, God, we pray you would encourage us to, and, and know that you do hear our prayers, that our prayers do move your heart. And Lord, as you taught us to pray, we pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven, that you would be hallowed, that your name would be glorified and honored. We pray according to this, this great truth today, and we give you glory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. With that, you are dismissed.